Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. I have teased this interview before because I think Tim Miller and I talked about Will Hurd in his new book a few weeks back, and we are fortunate enough to be joined by former Republican Congressman Will Hurd, who is the author of the new book, American Reboot. Will, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Charlie, what's up, man? It's good to be on with you. Well, as uh, as people may know, you are a former Republican congressman from Texas, and you've written a book that I, I think is fair to describe as part memoir, partly what uh, The Guardian has described as a manifesto for fixing America's uh, ailing democracy, which is uh, <clears throat> not an easy job. But can I just start with a little bit of the biographical stuff? Because you, you tell a couple of stories that I think are fascinating, including how you decided to run for Congress. You were, for people's background, you were uh, an undercover CIA operative. You worked for the government for many years. You were in Afghanistan in 2008, and I'm telling your story for you here, but you, you, uh, your job was to brief members of the United States Congress. And is it fair to say that you were underwhelmed by uh, our representatives at the time? I, I think I think the right answer is to say I was pissed, <laughs> um, and 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 look, you, you got it right. I I, I was lucky. I, my degrees in computer science. I was at Texas A and M University studying computer science. I had never really been outside of Texas. In my freshman year, um, I saw a sign to take two journalism classes in Mexico City for four hundred and twenty-five dollars. And I had 450 bucks in my bank account. So I go to Mexico and fell in love being in another culture. I thought it was cool seeing things I had only read about in books and added international studies as a minor. First class I took, I had this guest lecturer who was this former CIA tough guy, told the most amazing stories. And I was like, I want to do that. Hmm. And so when I graduated at 22, I went straight into the CIA, right? I was, um, I did two years at what I what I, I say now, what I used to call our super secret CIA training facility, and now it's on Google Maps. And <laughs> I, I did I did two years India, two years Pakistan, two years in New York doing interagency work, and then a year and a half in Afghanistan, um, where I managed all of our undercover operations. Now my job was to recruit spies and steal secrets. Best job mm-hmm. on the planet. Got to do it in exo- exotic, exciting places, but I also had to brief members of Congress when um, they came out to, to our embassies and our station. The, the station is the CIA office within an embassy. And so in this time, like basically this was the day that a bomb had gone off in front of our embassy, killed our local guards. My unit was responsible for trying to figure out what happened, conducted a couple dozen operations in a very short period of time, and we had a HIPSI CODO, a House Permanent Select Committee mm-hmm. on Intelligence congressional delegation. And we- Impressive um, sounding. <laughs> yeah, you would think. Yeah. And so we get in the briefing and one of the members, the person that had been on the committee for, for over five years, asked, this is 2008, 2009 timeframe, why was Iran not supporting the Taliban in Afghanistan the way mm-hmm. Iran was supporting other groups in, mm-hmm. in places like Iraq? Now, for your listeners who, you know, are foreign policy observers and watchers, they know it's a pretty crummy question, pretty basic question. But I start explaining the Sunni-Shia divide. And this member goes, Will, what's the difference between a Sunni and a Shia? Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking he's getting ready to make a really inappropriate joke. And who am I to deny him that opportunity? And I said, I don't know, Congressman, what's the difference? And I'm getting ready to go, but I'm bum bum. 
right? He was no. serious though. He didn't know that difference in Islam. And, and I was appalled. For someone who's making decisions on sending our boys and girls to places like Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, it's unacceptable. Just like it's unacceptable for members of Congress that are on the House Financial Services Committee to not to know the difference between a investment bank, a commercial bank, and a credit union. And so I had too many of those experiences. And I thought these members of Congress were countering and, 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 conf- and, and being in direct conflict with what my friends and I were doing by putting ourselves in harm's way uh, to serve our country. So I ran for Congress. <laughs> yeah, as you described, they had no understanding of the basic distinction at the heart of the war zone. And they they were too impatient to get a chance to shop for locally made rugs. That was what they were most concerned about. Yeah, so. it, 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 it was it was outrageous. It was outrageous. And and I expected better. Right. I, I expected our, and, and look, I don't expect every member of Congress to be a, a counterterrorism expert. But if you're on the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, you should know that difference in Islam. It's OK for my brother not to know that because he sells cable here in, in San Antonio, Texas. But it, for that, it's just it's just unacceptable. Well, let's talk about that run, because nobody ever thought you were going to get elected uh, as a Republican in in that district. And I want to talk about having gone from at one time being characterized as the future of the Republican Party to being somewhat in exile right now. And you can challenge that a little bit later. But you're kind of a little bit used to being out of step. Uh, You you are. And you you talk about this in the memoir. This comes through. You're the son of a black father and a white mother. And in the 1970s, Growing up in South Texas, that wasn't exactly the most fashionable thing, was it? So what was that like? I mean, and how did that that shape you, that you were there? You, did you feel he didn't quite fit in, or or how did you, how was that? Well, look, it wasn't just that we were, I was like the only interracial kid in school and, and in my neighborhood. Oh, and by the way, that term really didn't exist when I was growing up. I always talk about Tiger Woods. And after, I guess it was 97, I think it was his first major when he won the Masters, that he used the word interracial. That didn't exist when I was a kid, right? Even though, um, you know, on my birth certificate, it says black. And so I, I didn't always fit in. I didn't fit in in, in the many locations. And also, um, I had a speech impediment really until, until late middle school, early high school, hmm. I wore a size 13 shoe when I was in fifth grade. And, um, you know, my head has been large ever since I was four years old. So I got bullied a lot on on top of that. And ultimately, those lessons taught me, you know, my mother would always say, it doesn't matter what other people think about you, right? And stop worrying about this. I tell a story in the book about Coach Clark, who, you know, the lesson he taught me, he'd probably get in trouble now in the 2020s, giving me tough love but it was a message that, that I learned. And so it gave me, I, I think, ultimately empathy and compassion because I know what it's like to not be in a location. And so when I was overseas and didn't look like other people, I was still able to operate. But also I learned from my mom and dad about love, right? They loved one another. Their, their love for each other was so strong that they were willing uh, to deal with all of these all these problems. Both of their families thought that it was something that they shouldn't do because it was going to be a lot of a lot of hard work. And and 52 years later, they're still married and love mm. each, each other dearly. And so I'm glad for that experience. But but to your point, Charlie, it's like it's OK to be different. It's OK uh, to be to be outside the norm. And part of it is you got to think for yourself and, and do the things that are right. 
So you go to Congress and you get this reputation as a workhorse. Uh, Tim Alberta wrote a great profile in the the Atlantic, and and he you know he talks about how you know you had campaigned in all the corners of the district, and uh, when you were in Congress, you looked for expertise on issues. You you, you had a reputation as somebody that could work across uh, the aisle, and you work with with moderates, which is a vanishing breed now. So t- mm-hmm. talk to me about the people who are in Congress to legislate versus the show horses. And also, what is it like being a moderate and what's happening to them now? Well, look, you talked about this earlier. I'm I'm a black Republican that represented a 71 percent Latino district. Nobody thought I had a chance. Right. Nobody thought that um, that I could win when I first ran in that 2010 cycle. Um, there was five people in the Republican primary, and I hadn't really lived in San Antonio in 15 years. It was always my place of residence. It's where I was born and raised. It was where all my knucklehead friends lived. It was where I went to, to school. And, and nobody thought I had a chance. And, and I ran because I felt like there was a problem that needed to be solved. And the, the way I won, and I won that first primary by 900 votes, and then I lost a runoff by 700 because I made a strategic and tactical mistake. Um, but the reason we won in that first round is because I, I showed up in places that nobody expected a politician, let alone a Republican. And so the thing that I heard was, number one, people didn't see their elected official. And number two, people weren't ta- in Washington, D.C., weren't talking about the things that they cared about. And, and I, made the, I made the promise then. I said, you're going to see me. You may not always agree with me, but you're going to know what I'm doing and, and why I'm doing it. And so, so that's how I was able to win a primary and then ultimately uh, win a general election uh, again in 2014 cycle. And so, so I got rewarded for solving problems. Um, when I first ran in 14, re-election in, in 16, when nobody thought I had a chance, and then also my re-election in 18, when folks thought I was, I was done for, right? Mm-hmm. The reality is, if every Republican voted for me, I would still lose. I had to get independents. I had to get mm-hmm. uh, Democrats. And the way I did that was by solving problems. And, and what I found, whether I was in, in deep blue districts or ruby red districts, People asked the same questions, cared about the same things, right? And so, so that's why I was able to be successful. And then how do you get things done in, in Washington, D.C.? It's, I always say I actually hate that term moderate because a lot of people use it as a pejorative. Yeah. But the reality is moderates are the ones that get shit done. Like we're the ones that have to take a message to a community that's not, you know, that doesn't necessarily identify with your with your party affiliation, your brand, or even some of your ideas. It's easy preaching to the choir. It's easy talking to people that agree with you. Go in and show up to places where when they show up, they automatically think you're wrong and convince those people. That's what moderates have to do, whether it's someone like me in the 23rd or an Abigail Spanberger in Virginia. That's what it was like. And so what was frustrating, though, is if you want to actually get things done, sometimes everybody either side would want to play politics rather than solving a, a solvable challenge. Boy, you know, that sounds like a, a throwback to the before times because so much of politics feels like it's more uh, about incitement than about persuasion. I mean, I, as, I, as I watch, you know, political, the, you know, the, the political tribalization in the last uh, 10 years or so, 
it, it, it does feel as if a lot of politicians have given up on that, uh, even the attempt of persuasion. Yeah, because it's easy, Charlie. Like, you know, the reason we have this growing hyperpartisanship is that our system is designed to be partisan. So in the House in, in 2018 and 2020, um, 92% of House seats were decided in the primary. Mm-hmm. And in the last non-presidential election year, 54,000 people voted in, in, in a, the average, the average contested primary had 54,000 voters, which means 26,501 people decided 92% of, of the congressional seats. That's outrageous, right? In a seat like mine, you would have north of 275,000 people vote in November. And so when, when that many seats are decided in a primary, that means candidates are only talking to 2% of the population. Now, I, I always use Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez as an example. When she beat Joe Crowley in her primary, mm-hmm. only 25,000 people voted. She got 15,000 votes. He only got 10,000 votes. When I was student body president at Texas A&M, I got 11,000 votes, right? And, and so, so this notion that because you win a primary, that you're speaking on behalf of the entire country is insane. And, and, so, so, that, and, and so most elected officials, they don't want to put in the effort to, to crisscross their district. Now, not everybody has a big district like mine. You know, it was 29 counties, two time zones, 820 miles of the border. It was roughly the size of the state of Georgia. And so, so people want to take the path of least resistance. And that's why we have it. And then, in, in, and then when we redraw lines, it's incumbent protection. Republicans do it. Democrats do it. Right. Red, red districts get redder. Blue districts get bluer because nobody wants to have a tough election in, in November. They want to get it done uh, in the path of least resistance in the primary. So I want to come back to this. You talk about the, the normal Republicans. Uh, I think the headline in the Atlantic was, you know, revenge of the normal Republicans. But we'll, we'll get to that in, in a moment. So I want to talk about your book and you're talking about the American reboot. And obviously um, you focus on the need for the Republican Party to reboot itself. And the third chapter of your book, people who haven't seen it yet, is titled Don't Be an Asshole, Racist, Misogynist or Homophobe. Now, Will, I guess I'm old enough to remember when, if you were those things, that would be a political disadvantage. But in the Republican Party that you're describing and in the incentive structure and the primaries you are describing, those things are not necessarily negatives anymore, are they? They're not. But I would also say it's not the the majority of the party. OK, um, there are people that say those things that that reflect those things. And, and, and that's why I wrote it. And, and they should they should be rebuked. But when I look at and, and people, when we talk about the Republican Party, what are we talking about? I think most people always look at the leadership, the political leadership of the House and the Senate and the White House or wh- whoever's in at that time. Right. And, and yes, that makes sense. Yes. Some people look at the RNC, which is an actual organization and you have state parties, things like that. But the, the Republican Party is actually much bigger than that. It's all the people that are willing and identify with those conservative values or they believe in that formula that that, you know, uh, uh, freedom leads to opportunity, opportunity leads to growth and growth leads right. to progress. And those people, the supermajority are not those things. Right. But when we get saddled because a, a fringe of the party do those things, we have to represent it. And look, I, it, it's, 
I wouldn't say frustrated is the right word. Anytime any Republican said something crazy, I always had to answer for it. Right. The other side doesn't have to have to do that. But but we can't be seen that way because if people don't think we like them, they won't listen to our ideas and we have better ideas. And I have proven and, and people like John Katko have proven that when you show up and people give you a chance and you explain and you talk about your ideas and you engage in that competition of ideas, you can win over people. Now, John Katko is not running for re-election this year. You retired in 2020. Mm-hmm. Leaders of the party in, in the House, your former caucus, Kevin McCarthy, Elise Stefanik, have really embraced some of the more extreme elements of it. Kevin McCarthy is joined at the hip with the Marjorie Taylor Greens of, of the Republican Party, where Liz Cheney is a complete pariah. So you write in your book, you, I mean, you have a kind of a brutal indictment, at least in uh, the Tim Alberta story that I'm looking at, of the state of the current Republican Party. And you talk about how your relationship with Kevin McCarthy and Elise Stefanik uh, has changed. So talk to me a little bit about that, because especially Elise Stefanik, uh, th- her transformation continues to be one of the most remarkable things that I've seen in, in recent Republican history. Well, look, they are trying to represent the where a number of elected officials think the base is, right? There's been this notion that has creeped up. I, I could make an argument, it's been for the last 30 years, that the only way to govern is through one-party rule. Mm-hmm. Actually, that's the worst way to govern. When yeah. you look at any major piece of legislation that we can name, right? Civil Rights Act of 64, uh, First Step Act, Every Student Succeeds Act, Clean Clean Water Act, things like that. They've always been when one party was in the House and a different party uh, of the Senate. And so this notion that you're only appealing to that, that 2% of people that vote in primaries, um, that is what has led uh, leaders to make the decisions they've made. But let's also be, be honest, in 2022, Republicans are taking the House back, right? That is a yeah, done deal. I think so. Senate is is likely, if I had to put money today, I would say the Senate would go too. And so, so but the message is not that the, the, the public loves where the GOP is headed. They just think that the Democratic Party is incompetent. Mm-hmm. And so, so if we allow what I, what I refer to as kind of the authoritarian wing of the Republican Party, to govern. If, if they govern that way, and that means they're not going to try to solve problems, if you think the economy is immediately going to get better in December of 2022, uh, you got another thing coming. And so there's going to be a lot of challenges still that the country is facing. And if, and if Republicans don't show an ability to govern, then guess what? The pendulum is going to swing in the other direction. And I think that's what some of my former colleagues uh, fail to, to recognize and, and for me, this is not the, the party shouldn't just be about driving out the, the as much of the current coalition as possible. We should be talking about growing the coalition of people because we have an opportunity. Hmm. Right. And, and the opportunity is is with you know, Latinos along the border who are going to vote in probably record numbers for Republicans because Democrats are so bad. On, on border security. So that's where we should be headed, right? But I don't know if, if, the, if the leadership of, of the House or even the Senate are going to do that when we win in 2022. You didn't answer my question about Elise Stefanik, though, did you? 
well, what's the, what's the, what's the, the <laughs> what know? happened? I, I think if people would have talked about the future of the Republican Party, they would have mentioned you, they would have mentioned her, they mm-hmm. would have talked about people who had a bipartisan record, who were somewhat moderate, uh, thoughtful, um, and she may went in a very different direction than you. So why did she do what she did? She, she made a political calculation that was in her best interest or reflective of her, of her district, right? And yes, it's different than, than at the beginning. So there's no question about that, right? And I think it goes back to trying to build new coalitions is hard, right? There is a, a sizable chunk of the Republican primary electorate that, you know, is, is going to be behind Donald Trump. It's not the majority, but it's a, it's a sizable, it's a sizable amount. Um, and, you know, you choose a path to help with fundraising and these kinds of things. And so that was a, a political calculation that was made. Well, I want to talk about the Democrats as well, because you have you have a critique of them. But your book has really triggered a lot of speculation and you've gotten a lot of attention for this book that mm-hmm. you're actually thinking of a run as a Republican in 2024. And, you know, in, in his profile, Tim Alberta describes you as thinking that there may be enough normal voters to give him the Republican presidential nomination. And some of my colleagues describe that as wish casting. Um, well, because uh, they're, they're looking around the country and going, okay, J.D. Vance in Ohio, maybe Dr. Oz in Pennsylvania, uh, wherever you look, or Herschel Walker in, uh, in, in Georgia, you're not seeing the normal guys rise to the top. So what is your evidence that there are, in fact, enough normal Republicans? Because sure. right now, the evidence of your eyes and all the polls would suggest that they are completely in eclipse in a party that seems overrun by the crazies. Well, so so look, I I appreciate that perspective, but J.D. Vance getting 32 percent is not a is not a mandate. Mm. Right. And yes, Donald Donald Trump dragged him, dragged him across the finish line. There's there's no there's no question about that. Um, but there, there, there are another look. Kemp in Georgia, I think, is another a good example. The, The analysis is this. The number of people that vote in general elections, number of, of, of reliably conservative general election voters that don't vote reliably in primaries is greater than or equal to the number of people that vote in primaries, right? And look, the professional political class is going to say, talk to likely Republican primary voters. That means, as you know, a four or four voter, somebody who has voted in four of the last four Republican primaries, right? That's what the that's what the political apparatus is designed for. And yes, those folks, solidly a third, are going to be in line with the JD Vance's, the the Osmonds, the, the the Donald Trumps, that kind of stuff. So I'm not questioning that. And so what I'm talking about is doing something that most people don't do. But guess what? It's what I had to do in order to win my elections, right? Like I had tough primaries just like anybody. And so I was able to get new voters in that, in, into that. And so it, it goes with, I, I learned something from a fellow with Continent of yours who taught me about hockey. And it's a Wayne Gretzky <laughs> quote, a skate to where the puck is going, but also skate to where the puck, where you want it to go. When 72% of the country thinks the country is on the wrong track, it's time to do things differently. Texas just went through primaries in March, March 1. Republican and Democrats combined. Three million people voted out of 30 million. 
Like that, those are, those are terrible numbers, right? And so that means 27 million people decided not to vote in primaries because they didn't care for one reason or another. I think part of that reason is folks are more interested in leaders that are willing to inspire rather than fear monger. Um, fear mongering is what uh, rules the day now. And all these things I'm talking about doing is hard. But if we want to get to a place where we can debate serious questions that are going to allow this country to stay the most important economy in the world and for the rest of this century to be the American century, we better start doing things a little bit differently because this is no longer about us achieving our best selves. We are in a competition full stop with the Chinese government and the future of our economy, the future of our way of life is potentially in peril if we don't get our act together that's why this is so serious, and this is why we need to make sure that we're broadening the kinds of people uh, that are voting in primaries. Okay, so let's get into the nitty-gritty of where we need to go um, and your critique of both of the parties. Let's do that after this. All right, this is addressed to uh, both men and women of a certain age. Are you thinking that these bags under your eyes were just going to disappear? Well, then stop dreaming and pick up the phone and order GenuCell now. GenuCell uses plant stem cell technology to help rid your face of unsightly bags and puffiness, even the ones you've had for years. Lois from Smithtown, New York writes, I love it. I use it every day. I would say the change is remarkable. And it's not just Lois. Lots of people I know use it and absolutely swear by it. And you know what's even better? It really works for both men and women. In fact, with its immediate effects, you may see the results in as little as 12 hours. So order now and save up to 60% off Genucel's most popular package at Genucel.com. You be the judge. It's the best skincare you've ever used or your money back. Genucel.com slash bulwark. Genucel.com slash bulwark. Genucel, the best skincare, best results, or your money back. No questions asked. Genucel slash bulwark. Genucel.com slash bulwark. Okay, we are back with former Republican Congressman Will Hurd, who has a new book out, American Reboot. You reject the fringes of both parties here, and I want to get to that. Your, your critique of the Republicans really is, is blunt. I mean, you say that they become comfortable saying you're doing anything to win. The party of family values champions cruelty and hateful politicians while lecturing us on, on morality. The party of fiscal discipline and personal responsibility blows holes in the budget. The party of empowerment and opportunity systematically attempts to disenfranchise voters who are poor and non-white. The party of freedom and liberty keeps flirting with authoritarianism. Uh, Republicans have become an agent of disinformation. Um, and you believe that Trump deserved to be impeached, not just for the violence on January 6th, but also for that phone call to Georgia Secretary of State, uh, Brad Raffensperger. And this leads people like my colleague Tim to say, well, Will, why don't you just become a Democrat? Because I'm not a Democrat, right? Like, like I, you know, I, I, I don't believe in in some of the extreme things that they're talking about, where you should empower the government to solve problems. I think you should empower people to to solve problems. And and look, while I I disagree with some of the the parts of the Republican Party and where some of our elected leaders are trying to take the party, that doesn't mean I disagree with the principles and the foundational party. And we should have this debate, right? Like it should be okay 
to have a diversity of opinions within the same party. That's what makes you that's what makes you actually stronger. So 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 look, I, I, I am a Republican. I will be a Republican. Um, and and I think we need a strong Republican Party in order to engage in these competition of ideas. And I actually want to see conservative thoughts. It's not just about winning an election. It's about having conservative principles for four years, eight years, uh, 12 years, 16 years, right? So we can make sure that the trajectory of the country continues to improve the quality of life for all Americans. Okay, so I appreciate that position. You know, particularly Michael Steele articulates the fact that, hey, this is my party, this is my house. Mm -hmm. You know, other people have come in here. I don't, you know, I'm not going to let them kick me out. But to be a Republican right now in 2022, would you vote to make Kevin McCarthy the next speaker of the House of Representatives? It's a good question. This is always about what are the other options are. Elise Stefanik. Uh, look, so, so here's the thing. I would have been frustrated with some of the decisions that the, the, the party did because it would have put me in, in tough positions to have to answer things that I think we shouldn't have answered. Right. And so where my vote would have gone, it really matters about the situation at, at the time. But look, there are folks that, I think are conservative and are willing to to fight for our principles and 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 for me the party needs to like when we start reflecting our values when our actions reflect our values when what we say is in line with the things that we do yeah. and we can be successful like like imagine if we're going into 2022 not only if the American public thought that the Democrats were incompetent but they're like hey these these folks have some have some pretty good ideas and and I think they're 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 looking out for us and wanting to to help better our lives, right? Like that's and, and that means bigger coalitions. Um, that means in power for longer. Right. I, I I guess I'm going to admit that I don't quite understand that answer. So okay. to be a Republican, mm-hmm. do you want to see Republicans control the House of Representatives and the Senate in the next two years? Yes. Okay. Because you do. I think the Democrats have been terrible. Right. Look, just let's start with some of the crisis that we're having at the border. They've completely made it worse and they've completely ignored it. Uh, When you look at some of the the financial decisions that the Biden administration made at the beginning of the year, that exacerbated some of these global trends and made things worse for us here in the United States. Let's stick to the border because you're an expert on immigration. I'm really interested in your perspective on this, you know, having represented a district. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, you're critical of the Biden administration position on the border. And I think there's some real conflicts within the Democratic Party about that. But what is the Republican position? Because I asked you whether you wanted Republicans in control of Congress. So Republicans are are the party of Donald Trump who wants to build a wall. We know what his Mm -hmm. policies are involving immigrants, involving the, the border. Do Republicans have better ideas for the border than Democrats right now? There are some Republicans that have better ideas, absolutely, right? And and Such so, as. Uh, okay, start starting with stop treating everybody as an asylum seeker. Now, this was actually something that was started under the Trump administration and continued under the Biden administration. To be an asylum seeker, you're supposed to be a part of a protected class. Those are codified in the law. And you have to prove that your government is persecuting you because you're a part of that protected class 
or not protecting you from somebody who's persecuting you for being part of that protected class. And, and so we're treating everybody that comes here as if they're an asylum seeker, which means everybody's coming in and they're doing this, this stuff like catch and release. Like, I, you know, stop doing that. That's, that's step one. I think dismantling the human smuggling networks. Mm. It is very hard to get from Tegucigalpa to El Paso, Texas, right? And, and for 200,000 people a month for, for that to be happening, there is infrastructure, buses, you know, people that are moving folks, halfway houses, all this kind of stuff that are moving people throughout Central America that should be dismantled. And so there are some things like that that many Republicans can agree on. And look, the wall thing, even Donald Trump came off from building a, a concrete barrier from sea to shining sea. You know, he, you know, that was something that was critical of. A, a wall in some places makes sense where there's urban to urban contact, uh, but technology, and this is something that, that Republicans and Democrats have, have doubled down on in the last two years. So there are some of those philosophies that are going to be leaps and bounds better than what Democrats are, are, are doing right now. So I could see what a president heard would do. But mm -hmm. we're not talking about a president heard. We're talking sure. about the actual Republican Party, which seems more interested in going on Fox News and talking about caravans, putting kids in cages, things mm -hmm. like that. We, we hear from the former Secretary of Defense that Donald Trump was talking about firing missiles into Mexico. Yeah. I guess I'm I'm actually gritting my teeth asking you this question. <laughs> but okay, you, you said you had voted for the impeachment. Um, and you haven't made up your mind about 2024 and you consider yourself still a Republican. If Donald Trump is the Republican nominee in 2024, would you vote to put him back in the Oval Office? Look, I, I haven't voted for him yet. And so I don't think that would change. But also that doesn't have to be our choice. Right. And we we always talk about this choice in the future. I don't want, you know, two people that are in their 80s to be our only options. Those are not the best two choices that we can produce in this country. And so, so yes, like I understand the interest and the desire to have this theoretical conversation, but let's not get to that point, right? And this is one of the reasons I wrote the book is that there's another way to do things. It's harder. Don't get me wrong. It's harder. It's going against the, the status quo, but it needs to be done in order for us to make sure the country continues to be as successful as it has been. So isn't the reality that you can't say no and still hope to be viable in the Republican Party today? Uh, I don't. You're planning on campaigning, not just against Trumpism, but also the realities of the Republican Party. But you're not willing to say, no, I would not support Donald Trump in 2024. Look, I, like I, I haven't supported him before. Why would I do it in the future, right? Like, I, I, I don't, I don't, like, I, and I also don't agree with the the premise, right? Like, am I trying to talk? Would I be trying to talk to people that um, uh, that were his supporters? Probably not, okay. right? I, I, like, but but you know, I, again, I I feel like the way you win campaigns, ID your voters, turn them out. It's real simple. Right. And and the the professional political class has done things a certain way for the last 30 years and it's gotten us to this position. It's time to do something a little bit different. And what I'm talking about, I recognize the difficulty of the task. Right. 
but it starts with, you know, have a vision for where we want to go. People want to be inspired. You know, yes, you can drive people to the polls for fear mongering. We've seen that's been successful for quite some time, but the opposite is true as well. And, and it's just, it's just hard to do. So you've talked about if and when the Republicans win in November, you know, they're not going to provide a governing vision for the, the country. And you're hoping people want to get off the crazy train, but if I hear you, your main thrust is recognizing that it's going to be hard to get people off the crazy train. So you want to get more normal people, these people who are not participating in the mm-hmm. process. And I guess, are, are you talking about the exhausted majority, the people who are just watching this, the people who are not online, who are not on Twitter, who are going to, you know, come out and, and suddenly realize what well, we have the silent normal majority? I mean, do you believe that they exist out there? Uh, well, no, I, I know people exist, right? Cable news is only reflective of about 14% of the population, and, and Twitter is like another 14%. And there's probably a good deal of, of overlap, plus or minus some, right, obviously. And, and so, 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 yeah, I, I, but it's going to require you to talk to them. If you don't talk to those people, right, they're not going to come out. And when a system is designed to, to talk to the other side, this is what we end up with. But if they haven't come out so far, what makes you think they'll come out in the future? Well, the lesson of the 2020 election, I think, was two. Don't be a jerk and don't be a socialist, right? Mm-hmm. And, and that's why Joe Biden had zero coattails. The, the fact that Democrats thought they were going to win, Democrats thought here in the state of Texas, they were going to take over the state house. Right. Right. And this will be the first time in a really long time people were predicting up to five Republican members of the House potentially losing. And none of those things transpired. Right. And that's partly because the public said, hey, what y'all are talking about, you know, no, we don't like that. But, hey, we're going to give Joe Biden a chance because we don't like this other thing. And, and, it, and it was two opposite um, uh, uh, takeaways. But neither party accepted that. And, and Democrats they didn't have a mandate. They lost seats. So, so they're not going to lose in 22 because they didn't get their, their agenda accomplished. They're going to lose seats because the public did not like what they were trying to do. Mm-hmm. And, and so, so this is, all of these things can be true at, at the same time. And there are a group of people that want to see things that are different. And these are people that are are unreliable primary voters. These are people that that you got to get voted in a primary. And when turnout is so bad across the country when it comes to primaries, that's an actual opportunity. But to take advantage of that opportunity is hard. But when we do that, it's it's a chance for us to make sure that we have conservative thought and principles um, in play for a long time. So I mentioned uh, Tim Miller, actually you wrote a piece about your interview with Tim Alberta. And at the end, he says, look, uh, he loves you. You know, he would love you to be the president. But he says this is dangerous wish casting. Pretending the party has the potential to be something that it has no chance to be is not actually how we get the solutions that Will Hurd claims to care so much about. If anything, it risks distracting people from confronting the sobering real life political choices that are in front of us. So I like everything you're saying, but I guess I'm still struggling with how that connects to the reality we see every single day around us. Look, at the core of my personal philosophy, and I write about this in the book, is pragmatic idealism, right? And idealism meaning do the best for the greatest number of people possible, but the pragmatic piece is being being real about where you are right now, 
right? Mm-hmm. And, and you can do both of these things at the same time. You can accept the warts and the realities and the problems and, and address and, and understand those problems. But you can also talk about a vision for the future and where we should be able to go, right? Those two things are not mutually exclusive at all. And it's, and it's, and, and I, I, I accept and, and broker and talk about all of these challenges and problems and, and that have been happening in the Republican Party for some time. But we can address those. And the way we address those is by inspiring new people to come in the party and, and talk about that middle rather than focusing on the extremes. Because, you know, the, the, I don't know what the alternative is, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because, because the Democratic Party is not making things better and they have their own problems and they're going through some of the exact same things the Republican Party has been going through over the last couple of years. Have you thought about a third party at all? Look, I, I, I think the idea of a third party, I think someone that's in a third party could win. It'd be really hard. I think doing what Macron did in France and AMLO did in Mexico mm-hmm. is actual possible. Super, um, it is a, a logistical undertaking that is, that is pretty Herculean, but possible. Yeah. I don't know if a third party long term actually improves governance in this country. I can make an argument that the extremes get more of a role in a, in a party because if a third party becomes the kind of the, the, the moderates of the world, you never get a governing coalition. You have to get one of these other groups to work with you. You have to agree in advance to their, to their proposals. We've seen this in coalition politics in place like the United Kingdom and, and Israel. So I mm. don't know if long term that's the, that's the right way to go. Will Hurd, thank you so much for joining me and being so generous with your time on the podcast today. Hey, man, I appreciate what you're doing, and I appreciate your thoughtfulness. Will Hurd is a former Republican congressman from Texas, former undercover CIA operative. He is the author of the new book, American Reboot. The Bulwark Podcast is produced by Katie Cooper with audio production by Jonathan Siri. I'm Charlie Sykes. Thank you for listening to today's Bulwark Podcast, and we'll be back tomorrow. We'll do this all over again.